And now, before we go to 80 for the morning message, February is Black History Month, and each Sunday this month, a sanctuary member is going to lead us in a spotlight on a historical black figure of faith. So to help us do that this morning, please join me in giving a warm welcome to Ryan Shalady. So I am pleased today to help us recognize and celebrate Howard Thurman. Born in 1899, Howard Thurman was an author, theologian, contemplative prayer practitioner, and a civil rights leader. Thurman had a long career in education and in church life. He served in higher education and in churches in several large metropolitan areas, including Atlanta, San Francisco, and Boston. In 1935, Thurman helped organize a six-month trip to India for a number of black leaders and thinkers. They met with Gandhi and shared about the struggle for black rights in the U.S. And Gandhi's commitment to nonviolence deeply influenced Thurman and, in turn, many others in the civil rights movement. Thurman was drawn to the contemplative aspects of faith. He believed that a rich, vibrant spiritual life was necessary for any effort toward true social transformation. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Talk about that a lot here. In one critical moment of Martin Luther King's life, Thurman recommended that King take some time to withdraw from political actions for a while and take time to rest, uh, to pray, and to have some self-examination. King took that advice and later credited his ability to stay in the movement to Thurman's wise counsel. Over the course of his career, Thurman wrote 20 books on theology, religion, and philosophy. The most famous of his works was Jesus and the Disinherited, and I will say, if you haven't read that, pick it up. It's great. It was published in 1949, and it's a book that deeply influenced Martin Luther King Jr. and other leaders of the civil rights movement. In fact, King carried a well-worn copy of the book in his pocket all through the long and difficult Montgomery bus boycott. We'll close with a quote from that book. It cannot be denied that too often the weight of the Christian movement has been on the side of the strong and the powerful and against the weak and oppressed. This despite the gospel. This morning, we honor and celebrate Howard Thurman, his contemplative way, and his lasting influence on Christian theology and practice. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Hey, we're going to start this morning with a 60-second little discussion with the people you're with. So you're going to have one question that you're discussing, and that is this. Does sanctuary have a stated theology? And you have multiple choice. A, of course, what kind of church wouldn't have a theology? B, I have no idea. I never thought about it, and I don't really care. And C, I hope not. Okay, take a minute and decide. Does sanctuary have a stated theology? Talk to the people around you. One minute. All right, how many said A? How many said B? You're going to be bored today. Um, how many said C? Okay, interesting. All right, if you chose either A or C, you'd be correct. If you chose B, it's great because you have nothing to worry about. <laughs> so, yes, 
We have all kinds of theological convictions at Sanctuary. We take God quite seriously. We center Jesus. We call the scriptures our sacred text. And we do this in the context of community, which some would argue is the manifestation of a Trinitarian God. In other words, God exists in community. God the parent, Jesus the spirit, and we also exist in community. And no way. So several years ago, a young woman in our community in a meeting with um, David and myself asked if we would ever join a denomination again. This young woman was a single mom. She attended with her daughter. They loved the church, but she was in seminary, and she wanted to do a certain internship. There were specific requirements for that internship, um, and one of them was that the church she was attending be part of a denomination. Um, we told her that it was highly unlikely, um, and ultimately the young woman and her daughter left the church on great terms, joined a denomination she loves and I think is still there to this day. What we meant by our answer is, not, is that we are not likely to sign off on one denomination's theological convictions, but rather we hold space for all kinds of beliefs. As a staff, we are constantly reading books, listening to podcasts, talking, uh, asking, influence each other, and hopefully evolving and going closer to God and Jesus. On vacation, Tom and I were on vacation um, a couple weeks ago, and Tom was obsessing about his current read, The Liberation of Christmas, it's probably what all of you are reading right now, which is a scholarly look at the socio-political culture that Jesus was born into. I was obsessing about levels of Christology, which means how divine is your Jesus. We're not going to have that quiz right now, but it would be interesting to go through some levels there. Um, and so there was lots of conversation and debate on our vacation around these topics. James Tutson spoke eloquently um, recently about the challenges of leaving a well-known youth ministry with a well-developed theology, which offered a lot of theological assurance. He left the ministry because, in many ways, it just stopped resonating with him, but also because that same theology was harming people that he loved. And he described a little bit of his experience of how he felt not immediately replacing his theology with a new one. And he said, it's easier for me to write songs that get at theology poetically than to express my current belief system against the complicated backdrop of Christianity's history. And I would add that James writes beautiful songs that capture the heart and soul of our community for which we are eternally grateful. I did my graduate work um, and my doctorate at a seminary called Fuller Theological Seminary. This was a little while ago now, but here is a portion 
of their theology taken from their webpage. Following this evangelical pattern, the fuller statement of faith includes central affirmations which we hold to be essential to our ministry. One, the existence, perfection, and triune nature of God. Two, the revelation of God in creation, history, and in Jesus. Three, the inspiration and authority of the scriptures. Four, God's creation of the world and humankind with humanity's rebellion and subsequent depravity. Yes, comments are fine, appreciated. <laughs> Five, the person and work of Jesus Christ, including his deity, virgin birth, true humanity, substitutionary death, bodily resurrection, ascension to heaven. And for some of these, you need to have masters and a doctorate to know what they're even talking about. Six, the Holy Spirit's work in regeneration and justification. Seven, the growth and knowledge of God and Christian obedience. Eight, the church as creation of the Holy Spirit. I'm not really sure what that means. Nine, the worship, mission, and service of the church. Ten, the return of Christ to raise the dead and judge the world. I mean, that sounds fun. <laughs> the movement that we came from, that Tom and I came from, affirmed all the um, traditional creeds and had what is called a kingdom of God theology. Basically, that means with the advent of Jesus, God's kingdom broke into the world with all its goodness, all its glory, um, but only began a process which will culminate in all healing, in all redemption when Jesus returns. So we would say, as a part of um, rehearsing our theology in that movement, we would say we are a part of the now and the not yet. We're living in this time of Jesus, but not in the fullness of his kingdom. Okay, so according to Wesleyan University, there are approximately 30,000 denominations worldwide, all affirming particular beliefs. So a recent compilation um, of 33,089 Christian denominations worldwide, including the massive Roman Catholic Church with billions of adherents, 25 principal forms of Eastern Orthodoxy, numerous varieties of Protestantism, and tiny storefront churches with fewer than 100 members. These include churches whose governance is democratic, conciliar, or authoritarian, churches whose worship is ceremonial, ecstatic, or mostly silent, churches whose politics are conservative, liberal, radical, or quietist, churches found and run by women, churches that seat males and females on opposite sides of the church, churches whose clergy are celibate, monogamous, or polygamous, of course, it's impossible to study the entire panorama of world Christianity. Now, whether we would call each of these independent churches a denomination, they are all producing their own theolo theological thought structure and describing God. So, all of this got me thinking about what matters. What do we lose not having a firm theology or theological statement? How do commitments, values, distinctives differ from theological conviction? Do we gain anything uh, not having a firm theology? Is there any benefit? And if we don't have a particular theology, what guides us? So the scripture this morning comes from 1 Samuel, and I have to warn you, I somehow gave um, the projectionist the wrong translation, so it's not going to match up, so if it's easier not to look 
don't look. I'm hoping the distance is the same. When Samuel got to be an old man, he set his sons up as judges in Israel. His firstborn son was named Joel, the name of his second, Abijah. They were assigned duty in Beersheba, but his sons didn't take after him. So Samuel had a lot of character. He was a good man and a good leader. They were out for what they could get for themselves, taking bribes, corrupting judges. Fed up, the elders of Israel got together and confronted Samuel at Ramah. They presented their case. Look, you're an old man, and your sons aren't following in your footsteps. Here's what we want you to do. Appoint us a king to rule us just like everyone else. When Samuel heard their demand, give us a king to rule us, he was crushed. How awful, Samuel prayed to God. God answered Samuel, go ahead and do what they're asking. They're not rejecting you. They rejected me as their king. From the day I brought them out of Egypt until this very day, they've been behaving like this, leaving me for other gods. And now they're doing it to you. So let them have their own way, but warn them of what they're in for. Tell them the way, gods, uh, tell them the way kings operate, just what they're likely to get from a king. So Samuel told them, delivered God's warning to the people who were asking him to give them a king. He said, this is the way the kind of king you're talking about operates. He'll take your sons and make soldiers of them. Chariotry, cavalry, infantry, regimented in battalions and squadrons. He'll put some to forced labor on his farms, plowing and harvesting, and others to make either weapons of war or chariots in which he can ride in luxury. He'll put your daughters, I like this part, to work as beauticians and waitresses and cooks. It's very binary here and gendered. He'll conscript your best fields, vineyards, and orchards and hand them over to his special friends. He'll tax your harvests and vintage to support his extensive bureaucracy, your prize workers and your best animals he'll take for his own. He'll lay a tax on your flocks and you'll end up no better than slaves. The day will come when you will cry in desperation because of the king you so much want for yourselves, but don't expect God to answer. The story goes on and God gives them a king and ultimately what was predicted happens and the people become enslaved to the king's rule. So some things of note. The current leadership, um, Samuel's sons, are corrupt. So these people aren't thriving and saying, give us a king. They're suffering. They're desperate. They're dealing with corrupt leadership, and they're making their plea from that space. And number two, all the neighboring uh, countries have kings. That's what they see. These countries who seem to be more powerful and doing better than us, they have kings. Like, this is what the people have an imagination for. That's all they see. And it takes a lot of ego strength to say, yeah, I see what everyone else 
is doing, but God is inviting us to do something different. And number three, God honors the people's desire. I don't know, free will, maybe. And so they live with the consequences. The point of our Samuel story <coughs> is not that leadership is inherently bad, though it's often bad in the Bible, and it's often bad in real life. Make of that, right, what we will. But the point of the story is that when you give yourself over to something, you give yourself over to that thing. When we give ourselves over to a king, we are submitted to that king or a slave to that king. I want to propose that when we give ourselves over to a set of beliefs, likewise, we can become a slave to those beliefs. We can harm people and convince ourselves that it's out of love. Tom and I have done that. We can ignore science or what we're learning about the material world. We can adjust the world and pretzel ourselves to make it all fit into our theology. And of course, the closer you are to the king, the better your life. The king gave the lands that he collected to the people closest to him, to his good friends. So now there's competition for position. <coughs> There is reason to be close to the leader, to impress the leader. Jesus' followers understood Jesus' leadership through this lens when they said to him, I want to sit on your right. Let me sit on your right. I'll sit on your left when you come into power. Even their moms were asking that for their sons, obviously missing the essence of Jesus' ministries. Many churches reward people for how they live out or enact their particular theology, maybe even more than their character. In our former denomination, there was a time where we were very close, very involved with a more prophetic ministry um, that for a while joined as part of our denomination. In this particular ministry, there were three men who kind of sat at the top and they were super, super, the language we would have used them, anointed, um, and uh, very gifted, and we were kind of in awe of them and of their ministry. Years later, all three of them were implicated in sexual scandals that were happening at the time we were involved with them. God is not critiquing the role of leadership, right? From the beginning in the wilderness, God architects a leadership structure. <clears throat> God does seem to be saying something about humans. The point of the story is God saying, let me be the ultimate leader. You know, if we substitute biblical names of God, we can say, let wisdom be the ultimate leader. Let compassion be the ultimate leader. Let love be the ultimate leader. Some of you remember the song that Corey and JJ sing a lot, taken from a poem of St. Teresa of Avila. Seek yourself in me, seek me in yourself. Let the God voice in you and the God voice in me 
be the ultimate leader. Now, to be clear, I don't believe that denominations are inherently bad or that convictions are inherently bad. I do believe that God is bigger than all of our denominations and more expansive than all of our convictions. So if we don't have one agreed upon theology that makes us us, what do we have? I decided to label this list just a few observations. Commitments would probably work, but since commitments um, are not, the commitments are not really codified, I'm calling them observations. And I'm naming only a few because if all of us were together, if we broke up into groups, we would come up with more. So, one, we are a community that centers Jesus. We take Jesus' invitation to follow him very seriously. Rather than asking questions about factualness of every statement, we wrestle to understand the meaning embedded in Jesus' words and stories. We look at the people who Jesus centers, those he heals, those he lifts up, those he critiques. Number two, we're a community that loves to explore. At least two of our small groups this semester are asking questions about faith. One led by Ellie Alberhasky is for people who are moving beyond a season of deconstruction but wanting space to share their questions, their stories, and struggles and do it in a supported space. One of the small groups <clears throat> led by James and Steph Tutson is specifically asking how might we reimagine faith for younger generations? I'm so excited that we can do that. As such, we are intellectually curious. We love stories. We love Bible stories. We love our stories. We pay close attention to our experience with others and with God. As such, we love asking questions and making meaning. Number three, we strive to be a community marked by love. We take seriously Jesus' command to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. I regularly see people gathered around someone after the service on Sundays praying for health need or something else that comes up. And when they're done together, they consider the logistical needs that that person is facing. We're continually asking, what does it mean to be anti-racist? We have a small group doing that this semester. We know <coughs> that we'll never get there, but that we're aspiring and always trying to become more anti-racist. We ask what it means to be inclusive. We value sacrifice and generosity. We are committed to not scapegoat any person or any group. We strive for a more just, and equitable world, and so on. Number four, we seek to be formed by each other rather than produce unanimity of belief and practice. So how this is implemented is that we are much more likely in a structured conversation to ask the question, who or what is influencing your faith in this season of life, as opposed to saying, Here's what our church believes on such and such a topic. We're more interested in hearing what's going on inside of you and being shaped by that, shaped by each other, than putting something inside of you. Number five, we have really embraced the reality of becoming central to which is the reality that the instant 
we codify an assertion or belief, <coughs> it is out of date. We will tomorrow read another book or suffer another trauma or pray another prayer or perceive another bias that will cause us to modify the assertion, our assertion of today. And lastly, number six, we genuinely are trying to inhabit the non-anxious system that we think God is trying to produce for us. Which means we are not anxious about our correctness of anything. We are not worried about getting it wrong, whatever it is. We have values central to which is love and do no harm, but we're not anxious that God is going to be put out or disapproving or condemning if our constructs are wrong, which is good because to some extent they've always been wrong and will always be wrong. What being non-anxious in the God sense means that we can think and ask hard questions and make assertions freely and in our own time. It means that we can muse and try to move always more deeply into the heart of God. It means we can contemplate heresies and trust that God is both guiding and loving us through it all. I'll close with this. I came to faith in a very dramatic way. Um, after months of seeking God <coughs> as a 24-year-old young woman, I found myself considering Jesus. Of course, this isn't trivial for a Jewish girl from a pretty traditional Jewish family. On a cold December night many years ago when I was 24, I said to the universe, I said to God, if you are real, and if you are calling me to be a Jesus follower, can you send a man? I don't know why I said send a man, because I was living in the heart of patriarchy. It did not occur to me that a woman could do this. Um, but I said, could you send a man to my office to answer these three questions, basically how this Jewish girl from Skokie could know Jesus? Eddie Longoria was a young man who I had met at a party two weeks earlier. <coughs> We had chatted at that party for about 10 minutes. At 2 o'clock the next day, Eddie came to my office and he asked me out for a drink. He was cute, and I said yes. <laughs> Eddie, who I had literally known for 10 minutes, I didn't know more than anyone else in the world, we placed our orders, and he said to me, Adi, I'm a follower of Jesus, and last night when I was praying, I felt like God told me to tell you three things. And then he addressed in the order I asked them the three things that I said the night before. So for me, God will always be a God who will talk to me. God will always be an interventionist God. God will go to great lengths to meet me. Tom has found God profoundly as Emmanuel, God with us. And while Tom holds space for all my beliefs and all my anticipations, 
he engages with Jesus primarily as one who wants to be present with Tom all the time, not necessarily fixing things, not necessarily interventionist. If we took a survey of belief and experience in our congregation, we would be all over the place. And friends, that is the magic of sanctuary. That is the gift, I think, that you get to be on your journey and you get to graciously hold space for me as I'm on mine. And together, this is beautiful, and we find our way closer to Jesus, to God.